0: Hello and thank you for choosing to listen to this week's message from Spring Hill Baptist Church in Millport, Alabama. We're currently walking through our Redeemer series in the Book of Ruth. Our prayer is that this time in God's Word would challenge and encourage your heart by seeing Christ the Redeemer as our Restorer and Provider. God bless. You have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open it to the book of Ruth. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 1 today. Ruth chapter 1. We began our series in Ruth last week, and so I know that some of you guys were not here. We we're still kind of coming down from the Black Plague. So I'm glad that you're here today, all right? We're going to continue in Ruth, in Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 22 I don't know about you, but um, I get my thinking done a lot of the time in the shower. I know that's a really weird transition, but just walk with me, okay? I get a lot of my serious thinking done in the shower, and uh, a lot of you guys already know this, but uh, by your own generosity and your kindness, Brooke and I are so thankful that we got to move into a new bedroom uh, this week. Uh, over at the addition in the parsonage, and we are just elated. Uh, Brooke keeps saying that it feels like we live in a mansion now. And so uh, we already felt rich uh, just because of the the blessing of knowing you guys. And your love. And so we really are grateful for that. Uh, I took my first shower in the shower last night. And uh, like I said, it's where I get a lot of my serious thinking done. And uh, I don't know, it just kind of hit me that just weeks prior, um, there were bare wooden planks above me. And I was thinking, man, I'm really exercising a lot of faith in Gary right now. Gary and the guys that this roof doesn't collapse on top of me. uh, I was thinking, and I was thinking, man, it's just, it's so weird that just. Two months before, uh, that moment, taking that shower, I was thinking, man, this was just ground. And it's really amazing that the guys got things done so fast. But I also started thinking, just in taking the shower, I'm I'm showing a lot of faith that water is going to continue to come out of this thing, thanks to Harold, brother. Uh, and then also that that water would remain hot, thanks to Todd. Okay? Uh, but I, you know, I know those things are silly, but it's, I say all that to say that we exercise sort of an internal faith in a lot of the things that we do. And you don't even think about it, it's subconscious, but you exercise internal faith. Faith is an internal dependence that manifests itself externally. Faith is an internal dependence that manifests itself externally. You have internal faith that your car is going to start because you trust Honda or whoever is their engineering team to make a reliable vehicle. Your bed, you trust your bed, you have faith in your bed to support you because you trust the craftsmanship of your bed frame. Your steak, you expect and trust that it's not going to give you food poisoning because you trust the entity that sold you the meat or so forth and so on. I say all that to say that you exercise internal trust, faith, in a lot of aspects throughout the day, even when you don't think about it. And sometimes you do think about it. But faith is an internal dependence that manifests itself externally. We have faith because we depend on the author behind the work. Now, as we look at Ruth today, why should we have faith when our consequences, or rather, when our circumstances begin to be difficult. Why should we have faith? If, we're, if, if faith is exercised because of the author of a certain thing, why should we have faith when our circumstances begin to be tough? That's because dependence is at the very heart of what it means to be faithful. Dependence. Well, if we're depending on a person that makes a stake or depending on someone that manufactures a vehicle, why should we have faith in difficult circumstances? It's because we are dependent. On a God who is in control. It's very, very important. Why is it possible for you to have hope every day? It's because you have faith in a God that's not sometimes in control, not sometimes involved in things. He is ever in control, always in control. And here's the thing. His control isn't just that he's all-powerful, because if he was all-powerful but lacked love, That wouldn't necessarily be a good thing. And it's not just that he's loving and lacking in power because that also wouldn't be that good of a thing. But our God, who we depend on, who is in control, hear this, has absolute love and absolute power. That's comforting. That's really, really good news for us. Maybe the worst state that God could daily leave us in is a state of self-reliance. You guys, we need times of difficulty. I know that's a weird thing for me to say. But times of difficulty tell us that it's time to rely on someone that's greater than those circumstances. It's better at times to be in a state where we have to remind ourselves the song that we teach our children when they're little, and that's that he's got the whole world in his hands. We need times where we're reminded of that truth. Guys, this was Ruth's anchor that we're going to see today, and it should have been Naomi's anchor as we look at our passage this morning. Let's check it out. Ruth 1, verses 6-22. through Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should, say, I have hope. Even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law And Ruth, or but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. For where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. and When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Some of you guys weren't here last week, but I'll recap just some of the things that we kind of went through. Last week we saw that the book of Ruth began with a patriarch, a guy by the name of Elimelech. Elimelech's name meant God is king. But when family difficulties struck by famine in the period of the judges, he found comfort in a choice that meant anything but God is king. He compromised that. He pursued comfort that led to sin. He went to a land called Moab, which were enemies of Israel. Elimelech and his two sons then died. We saw this all in the first five verses. And then his wife, now widow, Naomi who's aging as a widow, who's childless, is in a land that is not her home. And so God uses turmoil and pain in her life for her good and for our good. He does the same thing. While Naomi then pursued sin, God pursued Naomi. God had a sovereign plan in bringing Elimelech and Naomi to Moab. and So Naomi's daughter-in-law enters the scene as a central part of that plan. Her name is Ruth. And so Ruth becomes A beacon of faith in an era and family without it. So faith is going to be sort of where we camp today in light of that. That Ruth is a beacon of faith in a family and in an era where there really wasn't much of that. So if you're taking notes today, that's going to be our structure this morning. Dependence, the foundation of faith. Okay, And that's sort of going to be our title today. Dependence, the foundation of faith. We're going to see this in a couple of ways today. The first is that is obedience. When it isn't easy. So dependence, the foundation of faith. First, we're going to see this, that obedience must be pursued when it isn't easy. You know, we bit off the passage here in verse 6 and in verse 22, and we'll read it, kind of walk through it together here in just a moment, but I want you to see something. Maybe as you're taking notes, I'll just, if you want to just listen. In verse 6, the passage begins with saying that Naomi arose to return, and then in verse 22, it ends by saying, So Naomi returned. And the reason that we're biting this passage off where we are is because this is sort of an inclusio, as they call it. It's just a, it's a sandwich of thought. So Naomi is going to return. Okay, that's the thought that's going to begin. And at the end of verse 22, or or the beginning of verse 22 that ends the passage, he says, and so Naomi returned. And so it sort of sandwiches right there. So as the narrative moves forward, the first part of the passage today begins to contrast two daughters-in-law, one by the name of Orpah and the other that you know really well by the name of Ruth. So let's look at it, okay? Verses 6 and 7 say this. Then she, that's Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord, notice the proper noun there, all caps, that's Yahweh, the name of the proper God, had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Okay, we sort of saw this last week, and I don't know if you remember. The, one of the first things that I said was that the goal of our time in Ruth is certainly to unpack the story, but more important than that is to see the hand of God in the story. Okay, to see the hand of God in the story. This is a great opportunity for us to see that. Notice what it says in verse six: that the Lord sees this problem and He had visited His people. It then says that He had given things to them. They were in this famine. And yet God visits his people. He gives provision. He gives food. The progression of the story hinges on God's provision on display. And so left with nothing in Moab, as we saw Naomi last week, through great loss she has lost everything. She's forced to return home, now walking with two other women. But she has a sudden heavy heart. And we see this in verses 8 and 9. Notice this is but. Something changes here. Naomi While walking, okay, on the way, she said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband, which they're not married, so she's saying, future tense, may you go and find a husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. These women together collectively are now walking, but they had been through so much together. They'd been through a great deal. And as we, it is the same true in our lives, when you go through heavy conflict and heavy situations with other people, it has sort of a binding effect, doesn't it? When you go through tragedy and you are in a hospital bed with someone that you love for a couple of weeks, it has a way of binding you with them. When you and your spouse go through a difficult time, it has a way of binding you together because through difficulty and prevailing, you're strongly bound to one another. This is what's happening. Each of these people, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, had lost their husbands. Naomi, even more, had lost her sons. They'd been through a lot. They were family. Ten years they had done this. And so Naomi doesn't just want to ditch the young ladies. You see, in their culture, she gives them a high hope of blessing on their lives. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you, which is a way of kind of very gently and courteously saying, I'm finished with you. It's a sad thing to say, but she's saying, go and be a recipient of the favor of God. I I want you to go and be blessed. She is sincerely hoping this for them. They're weeping together. She blesses them with an appropriate goodbye. But the bond was too difficult to sever so simply. I'm going to reread verses 10-13 through 13, and then I'm going to explain kind of what's happening here. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, remember how, how important family is in this culture and having children and a lineage. She says, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Okay. Remember, she's an older woman. Doubtless she can't have children anymore, but check this out. She says, have I yet sons in my womb that they may become husbands, become your husbands? Turn back my daughters. Go your way. For I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. What she's saying is I want your life to be good and blessed. I want you to have a husband. I want you to have children. I want you to have what Middle Eastern, Near East women in our day and age, their day and age, would want to have. A family, a husband, a life. But she's saying, even if I were to somehow get married right now and have children right now, are you going to wait until they're of marital age? You have your whole life ahead of you. Don't waste your life with me. That's what she's saying. It's a heavy passage. It's very sad. She's saying, I can't offer anything more. What we see in Naomi here is faithlessness that foreshadows that, check this out, y'all, she's wrong. The passage is going to be very hopeful later on. She's wrong here. But already her faithlessness foreshadows something she says that the second part of verse 13 she says no my daughter she says for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that they handed the lord has gone out against me look at verse 14 then they lifted up their voices and wept again and orpah kissed her mother-in-law meaning she left she went she turned away she went home but ruth clung to her What Naomi's saying here, when she talks about this bitterness, okay? No, you know, exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. This is sort of my paraphrase. This is what she's saying. God has made my life miserable. God has made my life miserable. And if you come with me, he'll only make your life miserable too. Isn't that discouraging? God has made my life miserable. And if you come with me, he's only going to make your life miserable too. And here's the thing, church. Naomi was both wrong and she was right she was both wrong and she was right God had punished her for her sin she was even right that in some ways if Orpah and Ruth came with her then they could expect a certain level of misery in Bethlehem here's what I mean by that they were doubtless absolutely going to enter into a time of poverty okay poorness They were going to go into a time of poverty. If they came with Naomi, it would mean more mouths to feed on a limited budget. It would mean two more bodies to clothe and house, all while depending on the charity of extended family members. That's not exactly ideal, is it? But more than that is that two Moabite women going to the land of Judah would be fish out of water, as we say. They would stick out, like, jokingly to say, ham at a bar mitzvah. They wouldn't exactly fit in in this situation. Two Moabite women wouldn't exactly be welcome in a Bethlehemite society. Their presence would be a constant reminder to Naomi and to all the people around her of Naomi's sin of abandoning the promised land and seeking refuge in the land of the enemy. That's a bummer, you guys. It's like when you go somewhere and you get a souvenir and you hang that souvenir so that whenever you look at that you put it on a mantle, you look at that souvenir and you say, i remember that. We went to Africa, and I still have uh, a picture that the little boy that really clung to me uh, drew with his hand. He wrote his name down and drew a picture, and I still have it in my office. And so when I look at it, it's sort of a, for lack of a better term, a, a memorum or a souvenir. And I look at it, and I think about uh, Incosete, which is his name, and I remember the, the good things there. But what Naomi is saying, and what she's thinking, is if you come with me, not only will it be miserable for you as a fish out of water, but you are going to be a memorabilia, a souvenir, and when I look at you, I'm going to remember my sin. It's very sad that their presence would have been a negative effect for her. And so hearing Naomi make a lot of sense, Orpah then turns around and returns to Moab, and we can understand why she would do so. I'm not saying she was right, but I'm saying we can understand why she would do something like that. Orpah disappears from the story for good and so we don't get any closure on her taking up the decision that yields comfort that prevents physical emptiness she takes up a more permanent kind of spiritual emptiness while Orpah's choice makes sense it isn't the decision that we're called to emulate we're called to emulate the decision of Ruth she clings to Naomi look at verse 15 Naomi said she said see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods Return after your sister-in-law. Okay, so now Naomi's done appealing to her womb. Okay, you don't want to come with me. Now she's going to appeal to peer pressure and say, you know, you need to go back with, with Orpah. She's got the right idea here. And so then we're going to read. This is so vitally important to understanding this passage. We're going to read now. Check this out. The first words spoken by Ruth in this book. The first words spoken by Ruth in the book, and they're really profound. Look at verse 16 and 17. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, notice the proper noun again, May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. It's a startling confession at the hands of a Moabite woman. Loyalty to Naomi. And even more than that is faith in Naomi's God. Each one of the things that Ruth says, and I know that it doesn't mean so much to us in English, but each one of the things that she said is very carefully constructed. It, it takes a step onto itself at each level. She begins and says basically, where you travel, I'm going to travel. That's the base, all right? She then says, where you take up residence, I will take up residence. Your home, my home. Just a little bit higher, it's a little bit more of a statement. She then says, Your people, in other words, your family, your nation, your culture is going to be mine now. She is renouncing her religion and her culture in favor of going and latching onto Naomi's. Meaning, what she says next, one step up, your God will be my God. She says, where you die, where you are buried, I will die and I will be buried. Now to us, this doesn't really hit us very heavily, but this is even a step up from saying your God is my God. And I'm going to tell you why. Because where someone died and was buried in the ancient Near East was vital to who they were as an individual and their identity There's an intimate connection with these people between land and deity in the ancient Near East. And so if you were buried in a certain land, you were sort of tying yourself eternally, in their words, tying yourself eternally to the God of that land. What Naomi, or rather what Ruth is saying is, I'm going to have a proper burial, and it's going to say that I'm going to have a restful afterlife, not in the hands of the Moabite gods, but rather in the hands of your God. This was the ultimate commitment that ruth is saying ruth binds herself by an oath that invites punishment even if she is unfaithful which is what we saw at the end of verse 17 may the lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you she swears an oath in the name of god owning him as her god and church don't miss this at the heart of her confession of faith is this Wherever obedience to your God takes us, that's where I'm going to be. Wherever obedience to your God takes us, that's exactly where I'm going to be. This spoken by a Moabite woman with only the hope of food, only the bleak hope of friends, only the hope of marriage, only the hope of children. What she did not know was that God had big plans for Ruth that would impact generations to come. And so we see here a principle. This is very important in the life of Ruth. And the principle is this. In the middle of the problem, it is rare that you see the plan. In the middle of the problem, church, Christian, it is rare that God shows you the full extent of the plan. It's faith. It's obedience when it isn't easy It's dependent faith. It's a surrender of comfortable in favor of obedient. Ruth chose obedience when her desire for comfort or ease would have simply taken her the other direction, the direction of Orpah. Comfort and ease would have turned her around. Church, the easy thing and the right thing are rarely the same thing. The easy thing and the right thing are rarely the same thing. Faith is not where you find yourself on Sunday morning. Okay? Faith is not where you find yourself on Sunday morning. Faith is who gets your loyalty the other six days of the week. Faith is who gets your loyalty the other six days of the week. Faith is parenting for Christ more than parenting for comfort, for what's easiest. Faith is having friends that honor Christ and point you to Him more than they stroke your ego and tell you that everything you're doing is just fine. Faith is carrying a badge of selflessness, of humility, because it's better, it's more loyal and obedient to God than wearing a badge of pride. That's faith. The easy thing and the right thing are rarely the same thing, and yet we are called to what is obedient. It isn't always easy. Faith is trusting God in the middle of the storm. And so we see Ruth's example of faith is then, and I think heavily so, it's contrasted and compared with Naomi's example of bitterness. It's going to be kind of the second main thing we're going to look at today, and that is fullness when you feel empty. Dependence, the foundation of faith, secondly, is fullness when you feel empty. Naomi's perspective in all of this is just so whack. I mean, it's terrible, and yet I think that we can empathize with what's going on here. One pastor said this about Naomi. There are moments in life when God's pursuit of us seems like that of a persistent mosquito constantly buzzing around our heads and causing us pain, and we are utterly powerless to shake him off. This is kind of the idea, the the thinking that Naomi was thinking of God in these terms. And now... She isn't getting her desire of going home alone, but she's having to carry with her, though a wonderful aid in Moab, this woman Ruth, that is also a reminder of her pain and her sin. And so I want you guys to look at her response to this amazing confession on the part of Ruth. Look at her response in verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she, that's Ruth, was determined to go with her, check this out, she said nothing. She said nothing. It's kind of startling, isn't it? It's, it's meant for dramatic effect. Ruth's first word, such a profound, amazing confession. One of the, the greatest confessions of who God is in all of the Old Testament. And Naomi's response is nothing. It's just nothing. It's supposed to read for dramatic effect. You see, our response to Ruth's amazing statement, which I'm probably, you're familiar, I'm sure you're familiar with, is to frame those words or put them in a wedding gift on the wall or even put them in your wedding vows. I think that they were in our wedding vows. That's going to be our response to this and say, well, what a wonderful confession. What a great testimony of what it means to cling to another person. But these were far from the welcome words in Naomi's bitter heart. Look at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Notice, the whole town was stirred because of them. And then the women said, is this Naomi? It's been 10 years, okay? Naomi's face had probably changed some. She had been through it, you guys. And so the church, or rather the people of God, when they saw Naomi coming, it says that they were stirred to see her. I want you to notice something, though, real quick. Look at verse 19 again. Notice the plural statements, the plurality. It says, so the two of them, okay, no more than one, the two of them, notice that plural pronoun, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And then the women said, notice it didn't change this. All this plural, it doesn't say that they said to the women. It says that they said, is this singular Naomi? Now, why do I say that? Because already they're ignoring Ruth. They're ignoring her. I'm telling you, I'm not making this stuff up. Culturally, she is not welcome. And already they're not welcoming her alongside Naomi. They're focusing on Naomi. Is this Naomi? They're stirred because of her. Which means that they were probably joyful to see Naomi. But notice Naomi's response is so different than joy. Look at verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now, we talked about this some last week, so if you weren't here, just listen. The names back then, it's like, in our culture, and I use this example, you know, someone has a name like, I don't know, Jonathan, which is my first name. You don't know what the name Jonathan means. In fact, I don't even think I know what the name Jonathan means off the top of my head. I would have to Google it. But the thing is, in that culture, that was a name that they just knew. All of their names were so kind of driven by meaning. It would be like somebody in this congregation having a name Joy. I have a niece named Joy. I mentioned this last week. What do you think her name means? It means Joy. Okay, it's an easy one. In their culture, it was like that. And so when they see Naomi coming, they say, here comes Naomi. You know what her name means? It means pleasant. Here comes pleasant. That's a weird name, but just follow me, all right? Here comes pleasant, and Naomi corrects them and says, I don't go by that name anymore. I go by Mara. Mara means bitter. It's not a very pleasant name, is it? Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me by my real name, which is now bitter. She tells them why she is bitter in her own words. Look at verses 21 and 22. She says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant, Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me? and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. What we see here is that Naomi was broken, and yet she wasn't broken. She was in shambles in her circumstances, but spiritually, she was not broken. Spiritually, she was not repentant over her Moabite experience. Her body may have made the journey home, but her spirit was far from being restored. To Naomi... She says, I went away full. What she means by that is, I went away with a husband. I went away with my whole future ahead of me. I had sons to come, which were eventually born. Her life as a grandmother was ahead of her. Her fullness was tied to her circumstances. I went away full. Life was good. But it didn't stay that way. Which, by the way, if Naomi now considers her circumstances as empty, then what does that say about Her ride-or-die companion, Ruth, standing right next to her. Ouch. Ouch. Ruth is standing right there. I'm empty. I have nothing left. What she says is that the Almighty has testified against me. What that means is that uh he had called her to account for her wrongs at the bar of his courtroom. Meaning, it'd be like the judge saying, These are this is the list of your crimes, and now here is your punishment. What she's saying is, God has read me my crimes, and he has dealt a vicious blow of punishment and calamity against me. Naomi and Elimelech had sinned by fleeing Israel for Moab, seeking better bread, greener grass. For ten years they stayed. And so as a consequence of her sin, Naomi lost her husband and her two sons. Hear me say this. She had experienced real hurt. Real hurt. And it's easy for us to glance over these details and not put ourselves in her shoes. Her life was really, really tough at this point. Real hurt. But her response is important. She grew bitter against God. She says, my name is now Mara. Now I'm going to deviate from the story for just a moment and explain something. There's a time in the Old Testament that they would know really well. In Exodus chapter 15, when God's people went to this certain land, they had just now fled from Egypt and God had delivered them, saved them from the Red Sea. And so they come to this land and the water there was bitter, it was nasty. They couldn't drink the water, and so they said, We're going to call this land Mara. They called it Mara because it was a bitter land. And so they started to fuss against God. They complained because they couldn't drink the water. It was bitter. Again, notice this was just after God had saved them miraculously from the land of Egypt. He then showed himself as God. He says, the Lord, your healer in Exodus fifteen twenty six, because he turned that bitter water into drinkable water. And this time in the Old Testament in Exodus 15 was a landmark measure of God's unfailing goodness, his unfailing mercy upon an undeserving and a bitter people. Undeserving and bitter people were recipients of the grace and mercy and goodness of God. By the way, in that passage, the next stop for them was a land called Elam, and it was a place of rest. I say that because in the midst of her pain, just like Israel, Naomi had totally forgotten God's track record of faithfulness. She'd forgotten God's track record of faithfulness. And I'll just be real with you guys. This has kind of been me this month. And this is me a lot of the times. Is that you know, you may think that I've just got it all together spiritually speaking. It's just not the case. And there are times, there are weeks, there are days that... um you just feel empty. You just feel empty. You can spend time in the word and you still just feel empty. You could spend time in prayer and for some reason you just feel empty. And the reason I say all that is because uh, my remedy for that, when those seasons come, as good as reading the Bible and as good as praying are, sometimes um, it doesn't quite snap me out of it, but something helps a lot. Uh, that that isn't those two things. And those two things are invaluable. Don't hear me say that they're not. But there's something else that I call on in times when I just feel empty, and that's remembering. I remember. I have a journal that's filled with what God has done in the life of my family, in the life of me as a person, in the life of this church, mainly in the life of this church. And a lot of times my emptiness is tied to feeling unsatisfactory as a pastor or as a husband or as a father. A lot of times as your pastor. And so when I feel empty, I call on remembrances that I'm just not. That God has been so gracious to fill me. The reason I say all that is to say, there is a great gift in remembering. Remembering is a great gift. We are short-sighted in life's turmoil, and we forget who God is in our struggles Life delivers, to take Naomi's two names, life delivers pleasantries and life delivers bitterness, doesn't it? You know this, don't you? Life delivers pleasantries and life delivers bitternesses. I say that to say this, church. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember who you are in Christ. In the highs and lows, in what's pleasant and what's bitter. Remember Nehemiah chapter 8, whenever God's people are absolutely torn apart because of their sin, and they've just received a conviction from God, they start weeping. They are in shambles. They're destitute. And Nehemiah comes and says, don't be weeping. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. We called this series in Ruth, Redeemer restorer provider thats what we've called this when life is unpleasant and when life is bitter when life is pleasant when it's wonderful there is a gift in remembering two things about God number one that God is your restorer God is your restorer the greatest example that we know about that is that God has restored you from death to life in the work of Christ How do we know that God is a restorer? It's more than refilling your bank account. It's more than giving you a roof over your head. It's more than putting food on your table. The greatest act of restoration that God in all of human history has ever done is taking dead, lifeless sinners, ashes and bones, and breathing new life into them. Jesus accomplished that at the cross of Calvary. And while you were yet sinner, Christ died for you so that He could take upon Himself the wages of sin, which is death, and that you could take on yourself the wages of life, which is righteousness. God is a restorer. You know that in a lot of ways in your daily life, but hear me say this, there is a gift in remembering that God is a restorer in no greater way than the fact that He has restored you if you're in Christ from death to life. That is hope. He's a restorer. But in more ways than just that. And that's what we need to remember in the bitterness That God lifts you when you're down. And that's some people in this room today. That God brings life when you feel like you are just walking, working, sleeping, dead. He brings life. He restores. He restores joy when you are filled with sorrow. And let's just be real for a second today, people. I know that there are days that that's you that you don't feel like getting out of bed and being a dad or a mom or a son or a daughter or a student or a worker. There are days that you just want to just lay there and say, I can't do it today. Those days and every day, God is a restorer. He's also a provider. I said this a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday night. A lot of you guys weren't here to hear this Um Kanye West released an album called Jesus is King, which is a sentence I never thought I'd say about a year ago, okay? That happened. He released an album called Jesus is King. There's an out al- or there's a song on that album called Everything We Need, and uh my kids love that song. They probably have no idea what they are actually I know they have no idea what they're saying, uh but it's a great song. It has this this melody that kind of goes mm, mm 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 and then Kanye says, "We have everything we need." And so Zion I'll go up and say mm mm, mm, mm and he'll go nah, 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 nah. Which he doesn't understand. And then I'll say, we have everything we need. And he'll say, mm, 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 which is a little bit better at that part. But I love this melody that's in my home right now. And I hope it lasts. Because guys, we need to know, just like my little kids need to know, whether you're 330 or you're pushing 300, you need to know that you have everything you need because you have everything you need in Christ. That's the truth. I know that because of 1 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's good news. It's good news. And it's true. Church, Naomi was wrong. You are simply never empty. You are simply never empty. Because God has provided all things that pertain to life and godliness, and Naomi was wrong in stating that she came back empty-handed. Christian, it's tempting to be so busy complaining about our emptiness that we miss the fact that God has emptied our hands so that He can fill them with something so much better. The hand of God is at work in this book. And the hand of God did empty Naomi's circumstances, but He did it to fill her, to fill her up. Unfortunately, we are so tempted to define favor by God's standards, or by by our own standards instead of by God's standards. Favor is not what you can see and feel in your hands. That's just not favor. Favor is what we cannot see. And that is that you are so loved by a God who is sovereignly in control of all things. God wants to use your life as a powerful testimony of the sufficiency of His relentless grace in times of weakness and in times of loss. That means that dependency manifests itself by obedience when it isn't easy and by fullness when you feel empty. Why can we so confidently have faith? I'll revisit what I said earlier. Because our confidence is in the God who's in control and that rules not only with power, but with love. So once again, the gift of remembering. Remembering what? He's got the whole world in His hands. Amen? Let's pray. We want to thank you for listening to this week's message. We would love for you to join us on Sundays at 10 a.m. as we seek to make much of Jesus and love above all else. For more information, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Spring Hill Baptist.